at the side entrance uh, to our house, there are two palm trees that stand guard on either side of this small little sidewalk that meets the larger sidewalk, and then there's the stairs up to our house. And I've always loved these plants and the green in them. It stands out in this larger rock garden that exists adjacent to the sidewalk. And I've loved these plants because it reminds me of a pineapple, you know, which is kind of the international symbol of hospitality. So it has kind of this very welcoming vibe to it and the side entrance to our house. Uh, I've also loved these plants because um, Amanda and I, our kids, we lived in Florida for four years uh, during seminary, and it reminds me of living amidst palm trees. I wouldn't call myself a Florida man, but it does make me appreciate and think back to that particular chapter of our life. Well, as much as I love these palm trees, uh, last winter, amidst the snow and the ice, the temps got the best of these palms, and upon closer inspection this spring, uh, they had rotted all the way through, all the way to the core, all the way down to the ground. And in late spring, sadly, I realized that it was over, that I didn't just need to trim these things, that I needed to take an axe and hack it down all the way to the base. I even hacked up some of the root so it wasn't protruding up, and I covered over both plants with rocks. And I thought, man, I'll have to figure out something else to plant there. That was, that was such a fun aspect of our house. And then one morning about a month ago, I wake up and I look out our kitchen window to see tiny green fronds growing up from the ground. It was miraculous. And in just a month, these things are now a foot or two tall. They've become plants again. After all that destruction, it was absolutely incredible that these things grew back. And it taught me a valuable lesson. No matter what life throws at you, if you have a root, you will grow. This morning we begin a new sermon series entitled Rooted. And during this series, we're going to be taking a look over the next six weeks, an in-depth in look at the biblical backing for our mission, vision, and values. And my hope is that if you're new to Oaks Parish, that this series will serve as a meaningful introduction to what we're all about here at Oaks Parish. If you've been with us for some time, I hope this series serves as a reintroduction to what we're all about here at Oaks. I was reminded or introduced to uh, a great C.S. Lewis quote a couple of weeks ago that says, most people don't need to be taught new ideas so much as to be reminded of old truths. Thank you, Karen. <clears throat> That's what I hope for us who've maybe been here at Oaks Paris for years, is that we're going to be reminded of these old truths, what we're all about here as a church. I think this is important for us all because the idea of rootedness it really runs counter to how we think about fulfillment and growth in Western civilization. We often think about fulfillment and growth by charting our own course, living according to our heart's desires, doing what I want when I want. It's, it's no coincidence that right in the epicenter of our city, we have an outdoor store called Next Adventure. We're always on the lookout for the next thing that will fill us up. 
But as a result, when we look at our life, often we're here, we're there, we're everywhere, and we're nowhere. We feel disconnected from God. We're drowning in questions and struggles. We feel lonely. And we wake up and we, we ask ourselves, why isn't this self-directed life working? I thought that what our culture was all about was the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Why isn't this working? Well, our mission here at Oaks Parish, in some sense, is paradoxical. It's the inverse of how we think in Western culture. Our mission is to abide in Christ Jesus for the renewal of all things. And I love that word, abide. It's a biblical word in our English translation. It's also like an ancient English word. And so that feels meaningful as well. The word abide, it means to stay, to remain, to dwell, to be present, to tarry. Love that ancient word, tarry. That our life is designed to be spent as we tarry with Christ. And as you can see in the syntax of our mission statement, renewal, which is a life of meaning, of purpose, of joy, of fruitfulness, it is contingent upon an abiding life in Christ Jesus. The theological word for this rooted relationship or this abiding relationship is union. And our mission at Oaks Parish is one of union. That the highest possible aim for us as human beings is union with Christ Jesus. So this sermon is really about this one idea, union. And I'm not going to be able to cover every aspect, every facet of John 15 as we just read. And as you could see, that's a pretty dense passage. But I want to pull out some things from John 15 that help us to understand why this idea of union is central to our growth as human beings and as disciples of Jesus. Well, first, Jesus tells us why union with him is possible. Why union with him is possible. And he gives us this picture right out of the gate in John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine grower. Some translations have the vine dresser. It's the vineyard owner, so to speak. And we see some fascinating realities of why union is possible. It's because of the father and the son. And I want to start with the father. This idea that the heavenly father is the vine grower or the owner of the vineyard, it's one of the most foundational in scripture. If you understand wine, you can understand Christianity. (laughs) That's a wonderful reality. And we see this throughout scripture. But let me just give you two passages this morning, one in the Old Testament and one in the New Testament that really brings this to light. The first is Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. Now, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah was writing to the people of God, the people of Israel. He was trying to help them understand why they were being carried away into exile. And the reason why they are being carried away into exile is that they chose to trust in the other gods of culture, uh, political alliances in culture, rather than Yahweh himself. 
And so Isaiah explains this very idea in Isaiah 5, 1 through 2. He says, My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Heavenly Father is portrayed or is pictured as doing all of this loving work to make Israel fertile, to make her his prized possession, to make his, her his one and only. He expected it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. It's an Old Testament picture. A New Testament picture comes from Luke chapter 20, the parable of the wicked tenants. And there we find the story of a vineyard owner who planted a vineyard and left it to the care of tenants. God is the vineyard owner. The religious leaders of Jesus' day are the tenants. And in this story, when it was time for harvest, the owner came to collect on his share of the harvest only for his servants to be beaten, turned away. And when the owner finally sent his son, Jesus, the tenants went as far as to take his life. Old Testament, New Testament, we find a profound picture. God's heart for us. The question is, what will our heart be for God? These vineyard analogies of Scripture, they tell us fundamentally why union with God is possible. It's because God loves us. It's because God and I know that we say that a lot in the church. God loves us. We sing about that. But do we really believe it? If you reflect just a moment, when you picture God, what's the expression on his face? For many of us, God seems angry or dissatisfied. Maybe the look on his face is apathetic uninterested, or distant. Some of us would imagine that God simply tolerates our existence and is bearing with us. But what would it be like to look upon the face of God and see a father who wants to be with you today and for all eternity? I'd venture a guess that our imagination for God's disposition is largely shaped by our own experience of fathers, mothers, and authority figures and the expressions that we saw on their face. But let's be clear about what the Bible says about God's disposition. He loves you. And he loves to delight over and over again, page after page in Scripture, God is described as the vineyard owner, the vine grower. Isaiah and the Gospel of John tell us that God is present to us. He's invested in us. He's cleared away everything that could possibly stand between us and His love. If you've ever been out to Stoller Vineyards uh, out in Newburgh on a sunny day, uh, you'll know the scene. It's a sprawling vineyard estate. This massive lawn where you can just sit out on a chair for wine tastings. There's this gigantic oak tree that sits at the center of the property. You look over to the right, you see a fantastic view of Mount Hood. And it's, it's really a picture of joy. Joy in the vineyard. 
So imagine if one day you were there for a tasting and Bill Stoller himself came barreling out of his house with a scowl on his look and angrily chased everyone off of his lawn. (laughs) That would be absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Because vine growers delight in people enjoying the fruits of the vine. I want you to listen closely. Our union with God is possible because God the Father wants us to experience the same love that he has for his son, Jesus. That's what John 15 tells us. And many times, even in the best of our theological works, we believe that the starting point for humanity with God is that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. And while God is certainly a just judge, that can't be the starting point. (laughs) Why would someone that was merely angry give up his son in order to be with the people he hated? It just doesn't happen. No, there has to be an overarching motive to deal with his justice. And that overarching motive is his love. God loves you. Do you believe that this morning? This isn't just an aspirational love, but it's a realized love. And that's because Jesus is the vine. It's a concrete reality. Jesus gives us the certainty of the Heavenly Father's love. Jesus goes on to speak about this in verse 4 through 5. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. This is really an echo of verse 1 where Jesus says, I am the true vine. In the vineyard passages of Isaiah 5 and John 20, God is clearly speaking to Israel's failure to trust and to grow in relationship with Yahweh. In the first century, there were various sects of Judaism trying to figure out how do the people of God course correct. In years, that they envisioned that a vine was growing underneath their feet. And the whole of Israel's story reached its ultimate climax and its true fulfillment in Christ Jesus. The message of all the vineyard stories is that union with God is only possible through a yielded, surrendered, and trusting relationship with God. And that's made possible in his son, the true vine. I love how author Dane Ortland describes this in his book, Deeper. It's a book I've been reading recently. Absolutely fantastic. Ortland writes this. Those who collapse into him in repentance and faith are united to him, joined to him, one with him. This and not the doctrine of justification or reconciliation or adoption or any other important biblical teaching is the controlling center of what it means to be a Christian. The New Testament refers to our being united to Christ over 200 times. This averages out to about one reference per page in many Bible layouts. So this idea of union, it's the controlling metaphor in all of Scripture. 
the controlling reality. That's why it's our mission statement here at Oaks Parish. Paul speaks to this in Romans chapter 6. He speaks to it practically. That when we look to Jesus in faith in this surrender life, what's true of Jesus becomes true of us. Paul writes, Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. This idea of union can have three dramatic effects, I believe, on our life as we think about kind of practical takeaways here this morning. First of all, know this. Our union with God is secured by God himself. It's secured by God himself. We just read this in John 15, 16. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Jesus chose an abiding relationship with us, renewal of all things. We can be certain of God's love for us because this union didn't start with us. This isn't something that we thought of. We didn't wake up one day and thought, man, I think I would have a better life if I just chose God. <clears throat> we didn't click through an Instagram ad that took us to a website that procured our relationship with God. This union was God's idea. It was his desire. It was his design. We are secure in God's love before we were even aware of it. That's how majestic this union is. Second, union resolves our greatest fears. And this is really important. Union resolves our greatest fears. Some of you know I'm the president of my son's middle school football program. And this week was really stressful. I had to turn in all this official documentation to the league that had to be done in just the right way. It had to be stamped and signed. Never done this before. It was so intense. I don't know that I've been this stressed out in years. As a result, one night this week, I had a dream that a football coach from another program called me and asked if before the game that they could bring their mascot, which was a longhorn steer, and run it across the field like the Texas Longhorns do. And, uh, and as he was asking me this question, fear struck my heart because I realized I hadn't scheduled that game. I had missed a detail, which was my greatest fear all week long. What are you fearing right now? What are you dreaming about? What's keeping you up at night? When it comes to union, for those fears to come true, they have to be true for Christ too. That's an impossibility. It's an impossibility. If that was true for Christ, it is as if to say that somehow his victory in the cross and the resurrection failed. But that's an impossibility. That's why it was a historic moment. So if it's true for Jesus... It's true for us. And that counters all of these questions, these fearful thoughts that pop into our head. 
what if I'm unwanted or unlovable? Nope. The work of Christ says that you're so worth it that the Heavenly Father sent His Son to rescue you and to be in relationship with you. What if I'm a failure? Not possible in Christianity. Christ lived a perfect life before the face of God. That life is our life. His record is our record. Congratulations. You're a winner this morning. What about the shame I feel? Well, that struggle is real. But whatever is haunting you, it was defeated on a cross two something thousand years ago so that you could be free. What about the uncertainty I face in life? Well, union tells us that God will never leave us or forsake us, but he will send us a helper, his Holy Spirit, his presence that assuredly would guide us along. God is with us now and forever. What if all of culture and the world is falling apart? Impossible. (laughs) Jesus is the victor. He's seated at the right hand of God. He promises to return. This world is his world. What if I'm unfulfilled? When Christ rose from the dead, it guaranteed access to God himself, that wellspring of life, meaning, and purpose. You can never be unfulfilled. What about the diagnosis that could end my life? Well, in the power of the resurrection, the end of this life is only the beginning of the next. Death could not hold Christ, and it will not hold you. At every turn and corner, union with Christ, it battles our fears. Dane Ortland concludes this, Only in the relaxed safety of your eternally secured union with Christ can true growth blossom. That's profound. We think that somehow like our fears are going to generate life and productivity. They will not. (laughs) Only eternal security can do that. And that's what we have in union with Christ. Third, union assures us. One of the great privileges that I have as a minister is that I sometimes get to do premarital counseling with couples who are getting married. And I use a common assessment tool in that process called prepare. Maybe some of you have taken it. So, both the husband and the wife-to-be, they take this prepare assessment, and it highlights where they have alignment and where they have misalignment. And then in the sessions that follow the assessment, uh, we rejoice about those areas of alignment, and then we do deep dives (laughs) in the areas of misalignment and talk about that. Why are these conversations important? It's because of union. Union's not just a theoretical reality. It's a practical reality that's going on in our kitchen and in our bathrooms. A man and a woman are about to become one flesh. And sometimes those areas of misalignment can take you by surprise if you're not aware of them. And if it takes you by surprise, it's not fun. Something interesting happens when union takes its effect and you're willing to die to yourself, something fascinating happens. Those rough edges of misalignment become smooth. Sometimes you even find yourself becoming like your spouse. Never imagined that. Well, Jesus talks about our union in that same way. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you in you, and that your joy may be complete. And we hear Jesus say, keep my commandments. Is God saying that through our obedience to God, somehow we earn this union or we earn this love? That can't be possible because of the ground we've already covered regarding union. This union of human marriage, it gives us a vision for our spiritual union with Christ. When you allow union with Christ to take effect and you're willing to die to yourself, the rough edges become smooth and you align with God in those areas of misalignment, even when it's hard and you end up becoming like him. This is the theological idea of sanctification. That idea of sanctification is spoken to in a, in a really old book called The Saint's Treasury, written by Jeremiah Burroughs. Burroughs writes this, From Christ as from a fountain, sanctification flows into the souls of the saints. Their sanctification comes not so much from their struggle and endeavors and vows and resolutions as it comes flowing to them from their union with him. You know, sometimes the difficulties of life are only difficult because our heart is in union with something else besides Jesus. Is what's happening in your job, your marriage, your relationship, your parenting, is it really about that thing or is it about what's going on? So many times when we face difficulty, we shake our fist at God. How could you do this? That's what Israel was doing in Isaiah's day. That's why Isaiah was having to explain what was going on. It wasn't so much about exile, although that was difficult. It was what was going on in the inner recesses of the heart. Could it be that God can see all the way down to the bottom of your soul and he's working even amidst something terribly difficult for the sake of a more perfect union with you? John describes our Heavenly Father as a careful gardener. His cutting is precise. He's pruning away death in order that you might have life, that you might bear fruit, and union assures us of his intentions. So let me land the plane here. To help you get rooted in Christ Jesus, I'm going to ask three questions at the end. These questions are available on the back of your postcards that are in the worship guide. They're here on the screen. I encourage you to pray over the answers over the next six weeks to complete this card by the end of the series. This helps us to ground ourselves, to get rooted in this union. First, what is your next step with discipleship in Jesus? Maybe it's like Karen and Deb talked about this morning. Maybe it's joining a discipleship group. Maybe it's becoming a member. Maybe it's hitting refresh on your spiritual habits for the year. What's that next step for you? Second, to what community has God called you to to be on mission here in the city? You know, there are people in your life that you love, that you love to be around, that you interact with often, people that you want to see and experience this abiding life with Christ. Maybe that's neighbors on your block. Maybe it's your team at work. Maybe it's the families 
a family promise. Maybe it's your school PTA. As I said a moment ago, for me, that's my son's middle school football program. And I'm there at almost every practice, serving our coaches, interacting with our program families, and all the while just praying that God would open doors right there on the sideline. What's that community for you? Third, how will you prioritize life together here at Oaks Parish? We have some strategic ways to do that this year. In terms of life together, almost every moment we'll have an opportunity to stay after service at social hour, quarterly potlucks. And I just invite you to make this a priority in your schedule. It gives us the opportunity to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. To get to know people here at Oaks Pierce, to go deeper relationally, and to welcome people new to our community. Being rooted is made possible by union. That's why this is our mission at Oaks Parish, to abide in Christ Jesus for the renewal of all things. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we pray that your grace may always proceed and follow after us, that we may continually be given to good works through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.